We are studying through the first epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And as I mentioned last Sunday night, I'd like to get through this book if possible during the last uh, sermons that I'll be privileged to preach here at White Oak. Having begun the book, I'd like for us to be able to get through it, and hopefully we can, the Lord willing. We're looking today, this morning, at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And then, the Lord willing, this evening, we'll look at verses 8 through 13, where the discussion centers around deacons and their work. But in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have those qualifications and other admonitions regarding a most important work in the kingdom of God. The former president of the United States, James A. Garfield, was quoted as having said on one occasion that he stepped down from the eldership to become president of the United States. That's how he viewed the work of an elder in the Lord's church, that he stepped down from the eldership to become president of the United States. And certainly that's an accurate assessment because uh, it is a vitally important work in the kingdom of God. Those who desire and ultimately become and function scripturally as overseers, elders, bishops, pastors, teachers, the various terms that are used, as we shall see, for those who serve as elders. In verse 1, and incidentally, there is a parallel text, of course, where we will not be going in terms of any detailed study, but simply to allude to the fact that Paul also, in his letter to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 4 through verse 9, also addresses the eldership and the qualifications, and they need to be viewed together, obviously, to gain the full picture of what Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, enjoined upon the church for all time to come in terms of the guidelines that are to be used in appointing elders. This is a faithful saying, he begins in this part of his letter. And this is not the first time that that proverbial expression, as it seems, is used by Paul. You remember in chapter 1 at verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Then again, the second time he says, this is a faithful saying. It is obviously designed to emphasize the trustworthiness of this statement and to emphasize the importance of this which follows, this is a faithful saying. And what follows it is this. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work, as the New King James renders it. The King James says the office of a bishop. But it's interesting that in the original text, in the original language, the word position or the word office is not, is not really there. And that's interesting because we do not need to think of the eldership as being a position of honor or an honorary position. Certainly it's a worthy, it's a worthy work, but it's not simply a position of, of honor. Uh, it is a work. 
and a very important work. And so the word position is not there in the original nor office as it's sometimes translated, but basically what is there is that if a man desires overseership, if he desires the eldership, he desires a good work. And the two words there, both translated desires, are actually two different words in the original language of the New Testament. The first one, the first desires here, is the idea of stretching oneself out to obtain something, reaching out for something, with an emphasis on the object that is to be gained. One who reaches out for that work, one who stretches out as it were, and that indicates, of course, some some intense desire. But the second word desire really emphasizes the inward impulse there because it it is a word, uh, epithumeo, which we get upon, epi, and then thumeo. You, ever, you remember thermos? Uh, we've had thermoses all of our lives, haven't we? And what does a thermos do? A thermos keeps something either cold or hot. And this is the word from which we get our word thermos, obviously, because it, in, it indicates an inward, an inward desire, an inward uh, desire for something. And so it emphasizes the inward impulse, the impulse of the heart. And so, as it were, we stretch forward for that work, but it is an inward desire as well as the outward object that we are reaching for. The two words combine to tell us how important it is that we instill within men that desire. From the youngest age in a congregation, we need to be teaching and encouraging and doing those things that will cause our young men to ultimately have the kind of desire that Paul describes here to become overseers, to become bishops. And that's the word that is used in verse 1 by Paul, bishop, which literally is the idea of an overseer. The word in the New Testament translated bishop simply means to be an overseer. Now, obviously, we have other words that are used to describe the very same position, the very same work. Uh, Elders, that's another term, presbyteros, for elders. And then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul speaks of those uh, things that uh, pertain to the work of the church that were necessary, that he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. And then he says, and some pastors and teachers. And the way it's worded there in the original indicates that pastors and teachers are not two different offices, but that that is a description of pastors who teach. In other words, that's another description for the elders. So you have bishop, the overseer. You have elder, the idea of one who is mature. The very word elder indicates that age or maturity is involved. Then you have pastor uh, and one who teaches as a pastor. The preacher is not the pastor, but the pastors are those who teach. They are those who are the elders. If you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you see a combination of these terms used in Peter's admonition here to the elders. 
the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd, there's the pastor, a verb form of the idea of a pastor, a shepherd, shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as, and here's our word bishop, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly. So we have... Peter combining these terms, elders, shepherds or pastors, and overseers. And as we said, the preacher is not the pastor. He may be one of the pastors in some congregations, but he is not the pastor. And then we get into, Paul does in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications. And time does not permit a detailed study of these for our purposes here in this series of lessons. But obviously we do want to spend enough time to uh, accurately and scripturally identify what is required of one who would desire to be an elder. And as we said, the qualifications are also over in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Now some of these qualifications are, are, are relative uh, qualifications. In other words, the idea of being blameless Blameless is a relative term, but doesn't mean sinless. But then there are others that are absolute. The term male, he has to be a male. There's no, there is no, uh, there's no relativity involved in that. Either he's a male or he's not a male. And so he is to be, first of all, blameless. He is to be blameless. That is, without reproach, as uh, is, is uh, sometimes translated. And the idea of this idea of blameless here in this word is the idea that which cannot be laid hold on. In other words, you cannot get your hands on something about this man to blame him with, to find him worthy of blame. His life is an open book. He is blameless. He is not a sinless individual. No one is. But he is without blame. There is no charge that can be leveled against him that would make him blameworthy. He is blameless. He, you're unable to call him to account for anything that, that is amiss in his life that because it is amiss, it automatically disqualifies him. You can't do that. You're unable to call him to account. He's blameless. His life is an open book, and that open book says he is a faithful child of God. Blameless then. And then the husband of one wife. Literally to be a one wife husband is what that says. He is a one wife husband. Well, does that mean that he has to have a wife? Well, if it doesn't, I'd be hard pressed to know what it could mean. Uh, That's exactly what it says. There are those and have been those who've said that, well, no, it just simply means that if he if he is married, he only has to have one. Well, obviously, he only has to have one, and we understand that, but he is to have one. He is to have one. That is the command. That is the qualification. He is to have a wife. I like what Wayne Jackson said in his commentary on this in terms of an elder having a wife, and then if his wife dies, uh, should he still serve as an elder even though his wife has died? And I understand and I realize there are those and good, good men, uh, scholarly men who've taken the position that yes, he, he could still serve. 
And the other position is no, that he should step down. But I like what Wayne Jackson said uh, in one of his comments about this. He said, quote, Moreover, if there is a practical reason why he needs to be married in the first place, why would not the same principle apply in the event of his wife's death? End quote. And I think that statement makes a lot of good sense, biblical sense. If it's required of him to have a wife in the first place and his wife dies, why would he not still need to have a wife if, he, or if he's ever going to serve again as an elder? If he needed one to serve scripturally in the first place, why doesn't he need one later? And there have been those who have remarried scripturally after the death of a wife and have served again as, as elders. And I believe that's what the text <clears throat> teaches here. It is in the present tense, and that is significant. The husband of one wife, not having been the husband of one wife, but being the husband of one wife, present tense, ongoing. And then temperate, or as the King James says, vigilant. And the idea of temperance, we're told originally meant the idea of being moderate in wine drinking, but most scholars say it came to be used later in a metaphorical sense and in a more generical sense, meaning what? Generic sense, meaning restrained in conduct, self-controlled, being level-headed. Now, we know that wine drinking is not permitted anyway. We'll see that as we continue to go on. But a term that originally may have had to do with drinking came to be known and used as restrained conduct, under control, one who is level-headed. And then that follows closely. Sober-minded follows closely. Being of a sound mind is the idea. Being sensible. Being a common sense person. And then he says, of good behavior. The American standard here says orderly. And the reason the American standard no doubt says orderly is because the word here, which the New King James renders as good behavior, is the word cosmos. Cosmos. What is the cosmos? It's our universe. But what does the word cosmos mean? Orderly. This universe is an orderly arrangement. And so the word here is from that word, and it's the idea of being well-ordered. Uh, an elder is well-ordered. He is under control. And he is not one who loses it and loses control of himself. And then, hospitable. And obviously, hospitable is pretty much self-explanatory uh, term, isn't it? To be hospitable is to be loving and gracious to Strangers, and incidentally, would not this term hospitable imply the assistance of a good wife? Uh, to be hospitable in a way that brings no reproach or potential reproach or questions about the elder's hospitality, it is much more practical for the elder to have a wife in order to be able to fully exercise the hospitality requirement that is enjoined upon him as an elder. A wife is very important to that responsibility. And then able to teach, able to teach. And that just simply means being skillful in teaching. And it anticipates that the elder is going to be a teacher, not just one who can teach, but it should be involve a man who is teaching. doesn't mean he has to teach all the time, 
but he certainly should be setting the example, demonstrating that he has that ability to teach. And he also has the responsibility, as elsewhere stated, to be able to convict the gainsayers. Those who would teach false doctrine, he has to know that doctrine and be courageous enough and equipped enough with the knowledge to be able to withstand that kind of false teaching should it occur. Then he turns to some negative qualifications, Paul does, in verse 3. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, uh, not quarrelsome. He injects one positive in there, gentle, not covetous. So there are several negative qualifications with the not in front of it that need to be appreciated here. The first is not given to wine. The idea that he does not, he's not addicted to, to wine. He, he's not a drinker. He should be sober. The American Standard renders this not a brawler. And the idea is that the association with drinking, the association with wine, could indeed cause one to become a brawler. One who loses control of his senses to the point that he, uh, he uh, loses his judgment uh, perhaps loses his temper as a result of that, perhaps succumbs to uh, other types of sin as a result of the alteration of the mind that comes from imbibing alcohol. He's not to be a drinker. Incidentally, there is nothing in either the term not given to wine or later on in verse 8, which we'll look at tonight, not given to much wine, that would warrant or justify any drinking of any alcoholic beverage to any degree whatsoever. There's nothing in the New Testament that endorses or in any way encourages but in fact condemns the idea of the so-called social drinking that is advocated, and yes, by some even in the church today. There is nothing in any of these texts that justifies the use of alcohol in that way. Not at all. Both terms, not given to wine for the elder in verse 3 and down at verse 8, not given to much wine, are equivalent terms but just simply different words in the original that equate, equate to the very same prohibition. It is not the case that, as some have contended, that the elder is not to have any wine but the, the deacon, he can drink a little. You know, he can drink a little. It's just that he, he's not to be given to much wine while the elder is not to be given to any. That, I'm sorry, but that is simply not what the text says. Uh, the prohibition is the same for both. And the idea of tearing long at the wine, prone to brawling here, just stay away from it. Not violent. That's the angry temperament that will result in actual uh, violence and uh, has that ever happened? I was reading in Wayne Jackson's commentary that he knew of a case where an elder challenged one of the members of the church to come out into the parking lot and duke it out with their fist. So yes, it does sometimes happen, despite the fact that uh, that should never enter the mind of two individual Christians, let alone uh, elders. And yet, uh, tragically, uh, that has occurred. So he's not to have an angry temperament that would actually lead to uh, to violence uh, itself. And so, not greedy for money. Not greedy for money. And that's pretty much self-explanatory. He is not to, he is not to have a, an affection for monetary gain that might produce susceptibility to bribes. 
bribery is still common in uh, many places in our world today, including the United States of America, I'm sure, at times, and yet it should never, never have any place whatsoever uh, in the church. And not just bribery, but he should not be, he should not be so concerned about uh, monetary things that it affects his spiritual welfare. There, there is indeed uh, clear endorsement in Scripture for paying an elder. Full-time elders who could be fully supported are indeed uh, scriptural. If you look at 1 Timothy 5.17, and we'll eventually get there anyway, I trust, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. That word honor and the idea of double honor is a monetary expression. It is primarily a monetary reference. The elders who rule well, let them become worthy of double honor. That's monetary. In other words, payment, uh, salary, etc. And there are elders in the church who are uh, supported. And full-time elders in the church are a wonderful thing, really. But then he says, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. But we'll get to that verse, as we said, eventually, uh, the Lord willing. But the point is, that desire for money should be in the background, not the foreground, of his reason for serving as an elder. He should not have an affection for money. He can't have a money weakness that would make him susceptible to other uh, sins. So not greedy uh, for money, but gentle, but gentle. And that's a positive qualification thrown here in the midst of several negative qualifications. But a leader characterized by compassion, a leader that is characterized by, by understanding. And then he says, not quarrelsome, not quarrelsome, uh, not a fighter, uh, not one who uh, has his feelings on his shoulder, uh, one who can uh, take criticism, uh, even if it's unjust criticism, and react in a way that does not uh, fight fire with fire, so to speak, or respond uh, in a way that is uh, unchristian. You remember that what Peter says about, uh, about Jesus, and Jesus is our perfect example, obviously, in all things. But you remember what Peter wrote about the example of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse uh, 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Listen to verse 23. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He left it to the, to the Father, and he did not react in kind when he was reviled or threatened when he suffered. And so an elder is not to be contentious or quarrelsome. And then, not covetous. And of course, while this certainly has a relationship to the idea of greedy for money, one can covet monetary things, but also one can covet a lot more things than just money. And so covetousness takes in a whole host of potential sins that the elder must avoid as Colossians 3, 5 points out, because covetousness is idolatry. And incidentally, 
and surely I know you realize this, but many of these qualifications that we're looking at here for elders are qualifications for Christians. They are qualifications for all Christians. Some are exclusive to the eldership, obviously. Christian doesn't have to be married, obviously. But there are so many of these that certainly apply to every single one of us, not just to the elders. Then we come to verse 4 where he says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, verse 5, how will he take care of the church of God? He must rule his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And when we look at Titus's list, the one that Paul supplied to Titus, we get some further amplification on what it means to have children in submission because there he says having believing children, having those children who believe. He must have children. He must have believing children. Must he have more than one child? That's a question that obviously has arisen through the years and still uh, arises, I am sure. And in answer to that, some say, yes, he must have more than one child. But in answer to that, what about a statement like Genesis 21-7, where in reference to Sarah, speaking of one child, it was said, who would have said that, that Sarah would have nursed children? And it uses the term children in the plural doesn't say who would have said that Sarah would have nursed a child, but who would have said that Sarah would have nursed children? In other words, we use the plural form of children in our everyday lives when only one child is meant. And in Scripture, you can look at examples of the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, what is the admonition? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If you're the only child, you're off the hook. You don't have to obey your parents in the Lord. Is that right? Well, no, you do. Even if there's one child, that child is responsible to obey his or her parents. And yet the term children is used here. And so obviously that uh, includes those who are just single, uh, I mean, uh, the only child. What about 1 Timothy 5, another example? 1 Timothy 5 and verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Again, if you're the only child, can you forget about the responsibility to take care of your parents under this admonition? No, certainly you cannot. And so obviously we use the term children to include whether it's one child or whether it's more than one. And it's my conviction that a man who meets the qualifications otherwise and has only one child could certainly be qualified scripturally to serve as an elder. Now, there are some who say, well, yes, but if he has more than one child, every child is different. And so he has more experience if he has more than one child because he's had to deal with this personality and one of his children. He's had to deal with a somewhat different personality and another one of his children. And so that really makes a difference. Well, if you take that to its logical conclusion, that premise, what would it mean? It would mean that you would have degrees of qualifications even among an eldership. So if you had an elder who had two children and you also had an elder serving with him who had five children, the one with five is more qualified than the one with two based on that argument. I don't believe that. 
I don't believe the scriptures teach that. And so having a believing child or children qualifies, I believe, according to the scriptural admonition, one to become and serve as an elder. And he says he's to rule. He's to rule or care for with authority, of course, his own house well. And when he says having his children in submission with all reverence, having his present tense, and that shows a consistent loyalty that is required of those children. But when he says his own house, it's not just his children that he rules with that compassion and authority, but it's also his wife. All are under his rule, even his wife. And if that's a problem, then a man's going to have a problem serving as an elder unless his wife is in submission as the scriptures require. And then in verse 5, he adds an argument from the lesser to the greater to make his point. He says, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? From the lesser to the greater, the argument is made. If you can't rule your own house, how are you going to rule or have authority over a larger group of people, the Lord's church? How can you oversee the church? But then one other question as we begin to conclude. What about grown children who have left home? What about an elder's responsibility to those grown children who've left home and established their own families? He's no longer responsible for that grown child's behavior because that child is not a part of his household any longer. That child is out here as an adult with a separate household, away from the household here. Should that child respect what he or she uh, learned and grew up being taught? Well, yes, but do they always? No. Would that disqualify a man to whom that occurred, to whom that happened? I do not believe it would. But you'd have to respect a man's conviction in that sense, I think. And if he felt that for some reason his leadership was, was compromised and that the congregation had problems in following him based upon that kind of situation, he'd have to make his own decision based on his own conviction and conscience about that. But this deals with the children who are a part of his household and his wife who is a part of his household. And then very quickly, not a novice, lest being pick, uh, puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. An elder is not to be a new convert uh, because a new convert is going to be tempted more than the mature Christian. He's not going to have the... Uh, the, ma the maturity, the wisdom, the knowledge that hopefully older men have gained. And so he is not to be a new convert. And finally, he's to have a good testimony among those who are outside, that is outside the body of Christ. Out here in this community, if one were to serve as an elder, he should have a blameless character among all those with whom he comes in contact whether members of the church or not. In fact, this specifies those who are not members of the church, and yet even among them, the elder is to have a good testimony from those who are outside. What about your testimony, as it were, this morning? We don't testify in the Lord's church today, but what about your reputation? What about your life? How do those outside the body of Christ view you? Well, if you're here today and not a Christian... They cannot view you as a Christian. 
If you're here today as a wayward child of God, they cannot view you as a faithful child of God. But that can all change as quickly as you're willing to believe in Jesus as the Christ, repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins and be added to his church. And that can change just as quickly for a wayward member who is here who needs to respond publicly to a public sin, but privately, take care of private sin privately, as we've often said. But if you need to come home to your first love so that those outside and those inside the body will know that indeed you have a determination, a renewed determination to follow God, we plead with you to come too. As we stand to sing, will you come?